Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. How you doing, everyone? Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ready to Record from Blue Girl Studios. My name is Daniel, the D3 Cohen. I am your host, and I am speaking to you from Blue Girl Productions' worldwide headquarters and studios here in my garage. I'm a 19-year-old aspiring musician, engineer, and producer, and like many of you, I make music out of my own home studio. You know, some of today's biggest hit makers work from home studios, so maybe we can help one of you guys accomplish your big dreams. In our last episode, I had the extreme pleasure of speaking with Dusty Wakeman. That was a two-part conversation. You can check that out at our network site, pantheonpodcasts.com. You can also check out a lot of other great music podcasts on that website. You can also check it out at our website, bluegirlproductions.net, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Today is a special one, and one that I have been excited to share for a long time coming. Today, I am speaking with Miss Vanna Manley. Vanna Manley has an interesting story. Growing up the stepdaughter of Al DeRay, a former owner of Ampeg, Vanna seemingly had her career mapped out for her, even if she wasn't in the gear-making industry when she was young. After moving to New York and attending Columbia University, Vanna found herself in L.A. after a seemingly life-changing guest lecture that Bill Graham did while she was at Columbia. This is actually where Havana's story and mine collide, because it was my father's frat brother who actually scheduled that. Now, Havana is running one of the most successful gear companies in the industry today, with some of the most respect of any maker, new or old. So, here's my conversation with Havana Manley. Miss Savannah Manley, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Daniel. Well, you have an interesting career because you have an interesting personal history and personal background, uh, including a father who kind of ran Ampeg for a while. What was it like growing up with that in the house? Well, I didn't grow up with that in the house. That's the whole thing. He was my stepfather. Gotcha. So he, he met my mom in 1975, I think. They got married in 76. So I was in like second, third grade, something like that. And um, he had already sold Ampeg in 1972, I believe, to Magnavox. And he he did a 
I think like a stock transfer or something or anyway, it whatever the investment vehicle was that he took the payment from, it didn't work and it failed. And so he borrowed a quarter million dollars from his mother and put it on the same whatever it was. What Maybe it was stock in Magnavox for all I know. I don't even know what it was. And that also failed. So that set up a chain for him where he was just chasing a big, quick score in order to pay back his mother. So he borrows money from his uncle. Whoops, that failed too. Oh shit, now I owe my mother a quarter million dollars and my uncle $30,000. And then he borrows money from his daughter's in-laws. Oops, now I owe them $30,000 and the uncle $30,000 and my mother quarter million dollars. And on and on this went. So he was completely broke when he met my mom. And they got really into the church and everything. And so, but he, I don't know, he was uh, just trying to make a big fast score all the time. It ended up landing him in prison in the late seventies for a year. Um, and he was just scrambling all the time. So growing up with him in this mode, it took us decades to realize that he actually had a mental illness, kind of like a gambling addiction, you know, where he's just not based in reality. This is not how you make good on your debts, you know, to keep making more debts. <laughs> so, um, growing up was, financially very insecure. We, you know, a new car would come in and then it would leave. <laughs> Everything was very unstable. And so part of the motivation when I came out to California in the middle of college was I needed to earn some money to finish paying for my school. You know what I mean? So, sure. that, that, you know, I, I definitely got the good out of how I grew up, um, you know, motivation to take care of myself because you know, no one else was going to be taking care of me. So I kind of learned that early on and became independent a little earlier than maybe <laughs> I would have otherwise, if you know what I mean. Right. I see a lot of people talk about your your history being the, the stepdaughter of, of the owner of Ampeg. And I, I, I've thought about that as, as a bass player and, and somebody with... Well, yeah, well... You know, he told us stories about his great success and uh, bringing out the SVT in 1969 or whatever, and that Stones going on tour with all Ampeg, and a third of the stage at Woodstock was all Ampeg, and he had met Johnny Cash and Eric Burden and, you know, whoever. He had just met all kinds of cool people. Right. So those stories were always very intriguing. And um, I guess in the end, you can just say I, I, I knew whatever about the music business or vacuum tubes or manufacturing or anything just from he hearing those um, stories of, you know, him with his customers. And then he he would buy, you know, he bought um, Grammar guitar and they formed Dan Armstrong guitar. He owned the Emmons Steel Guitar Company. Um. And they were actually looking at Altec Lansing and Moog at the time. So he was, he had formed this conglomerate that started chomping up guitar based companies, basically. Um, so that, you know, I, I got a little bit of some background or just, just from hearing the stories, but I certainly did not have my hands in it at all. That was all gone by the 
time he came around to our lives. I see. Interesting. So as a kid, I, I presume you weren't thinking about being the the queen of the vacuum tube <laughs> no. uh, as an adult. What? Where? I wish I had known more about, you know, may, I would have studied electronics or something like that. I was a, a band geek and a music geek, and I, I love music theory. And it was in one of those music classes, you know, in college that I I met David Graham, and then um, he brought his dad in that day, you know, and that changed my life that day. But before that, I was I was kind of bouncing between visual arts, you know, graphic design or drawing or some kind of visual art creation. Mm-hmm. Um, and being a, a kind of science and math geek anyway, like I was one of these, I, I, I was involved in all the STEAM, you know, the science, technology, electronics, music, arts, it, all that. I was involved in all that kind of stuff before it even existed in the, you know, as a high school kid in the early eighties. Sure. Um, my mother was trying to pressure me to go into like architectural school or something like that. But those, I, I looked at interning with an architectural firm in Atlanta at one point, And I don't know that it just didn't seem to be my people. You know what I mean? They were all a little stiff and had high collar shirts and what it, it just wasn't rock and roll enough for me. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't feel comfortable there. Um, so when I entered college, I kind of had to make a decision between visual arts and music arts. And I, I decided to study music and I didn't know where that was going to take me, but that's, that's what I did. And the rest of it was just studying New York city because it was awesome to be, you know, 18 or 19 years old in New York all by yourself is, it was really fun. Good right. times. Definitely. Well, you know, it's funny. My grandfather, he was one of the, uh, he was one of the madmen. He, he, <laughs> he went to Harvard and, and initially I believe he was going to go into, uh, law. Uh, a- after a while he ended up, uh, getting recruited by one of his college buddies, uh, to be in advertising and that's where he stayed. So, when when it was well, time, that's funny because because my stepfather Al Duray, he went to Harvard, and then he went to Columbia Business School. And before he bought the Ampeg Company, he was working for um, some different advertising companies on Madison Avenue. And he lived in New Jersey, and he would put his hat on and take the train into the city. And he was totally a madman guy as well in the late fifties, early sixties, maybe they knew each other. Who knows? Perhaps my, my, my grandfather came in. He was, he was a Harvard class of 1960. So he was, you know, he he was a lot, lot younger than, okay. He was was like the last year of when it was truly the Mad Men. Um, Got it. Yeah. Dad was, he was class of 49 or something but he graduated harvard very young and he was a a real whiz kid um in those early years uh doing sales and marketing activities for uh westinghouse i think it was and bowater paper company Mm. and he also worked for uh i'm not remembering now another he worked for an advertising firm on madab so yep we've got these madmen in our backgrounds don't we Yes, yes, we do. (laughs) 
But that lifestyle, I'll tell you a story, that lifestyle, you know, with the um, cocktail parties and all that kind of stuff, just like the TV show, my my father's first wife died of alcoholism in 1970. And that's that influenced him to I think he kind of lost his marbles around that time because that's when he sold Ampeg after that he sold Ampeg and got out of the whole music business and moved out of New Jersey and moved to the south and um yeah I think but I think her her drinking was definitely you know influenced from the times where you know he was away at work all day and she was home bored with three kids and turned to alcohol I I think I think you know it's kind of like uh the the TV show is definitely based on some kind of reality I'll just put it that way <laughs> I I from what I've heard it is um and the, it it is a bit unfortunate but at least it's a good TV show mm. but uh the reason I had brought up my 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 grandfather was kind of similarly to to what you were talking about being alone in in New York my my father uh grew up in he was born in Manhattan and he grew up in uh in a suburb of New York called Larchmont out in Westchester and uh and when he got to Columbia um he didn't actually have to move away for college his parents moved away for him uh, so, <laughs> so my uh my grandparents came out here to to San Francisco, well, Marin they lived in, but uh, but my 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 grandfather came out here because he was told to go uh, run an ad agency out, mm. um, and then they came they they were brought back to to New York after a couple of years. Uh, once they realized that they or once they had found a position for him back in New York, but it, it was it was funny. My my father was. Uh, my father had his parents move away to college for him. That's hysterical. Uh, yeah, yeah. My parents were like, "You, you, we'll let you go to any college that you can get into, no problem, as long as it's east of the Mississippi." Like they were afraid of California. They didn't want me to leave and go far away. So of course, the first opportunity I got to get the hell out of <laughs> Dodge was like to go all the way across the country to California. But yeah, it's it, you know I've been um, wondering if I knew your dad at all during college because we definitely had uh, some of the same friends and stuff. But I wasn't super ingrained with um, your dad's buddies uh, with the with Dreamspeak and and all that. I just kind of casually knew them um, around, mainly from music classes and stuff. But we didn't really socialize too much. Well, you know, he had the he had kind of the hippie scene, you know. They were they were all uh they were they were what 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 would I call them? They were they were the polo shirt hippies, I guess. Yeah. They they liked uh the jam bands and the and Grateful Dead and all that kind of stuff. I was really into psychedelic music from the sixties, but my uh I I came I came into it just being like a band geek, you know, <laughs> like, right. Mark, you know, high school band geek in music theory and all that kind of thing. I came at it from a different place than they did, but we all ended up in that same music class and that's where Bill Graham ended up and influenced me. That was the, that was the coolest day, man. 
I've still got my notes from that class. And uh, he was he was telling us about the music business. And he said, well, you have your artists and you have your producers and you got your engineers and you have concert promoters like me and you've got A&R and they got to decide the acts and promote them. And it's like, oh, wow, that's how it worked. <laughs> because, I mean, I had no idea. I was just 20 years old or whatever. Right. And, uh, it was really cool because I knew who he was. It's like, oh, this is Bill Graham. He's the San Francisco, you know, Fillmore West, Fillmore East. He um, He's the voice on the beginning of the Cheap Thrills record. You know, <laughs> I knew exactly who he was um, when he came into class that day. And I was just really taken by him so much sure. so that I decided like, because um, my dad was going to have a lot of trouble pulling tuition for my sister and me at the same time that next uh, spring. So I was like, you know what, maybe I'll drive out to California and go find Bill Graham presents and try to talk myself into some kind of job with them. But I did, I ended up in LA instead, but that was my plan <laughs> influenced <laughs> that day by Bill Graham. And that's, I tell this to kids when I'm mentoring kids in, in on all these podcasts, it's the same story, but you know, I tell kids like, keep your eyes open because you never know. You meet someone, or you, you know, listen. You could listen to a podcast or watch a TED talk or something, and just keep your eyes open because your whole life could pivot on being influenced or inspired by one of these lectures or one of these talks or somebody's story, or if you meet somebody. So. You you know don't block out any opportunities, especially when you're young. You've got the whole world in front of you. You've got all the time in the world. Try it out when you're young, because when you get older, you get get boxed in by so many obligations. You can't try new stuff, you know. So right, right. I, I think the the question that keeps bubbling up in my mind is. <clears throat> around the internet around you know various conversations that you've had with people you often talk about uh that that guest lecture that bill did um mm. but i'm i'm very curious after after that inspiration you 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 walk out of that class on whatever day that was in in, in new york city and what what was the what was the turning point? How did you get from, wow, I'm very inspired. I'm, I'm becoming, uh, I want to go in this direction to coming out to LA and, and finding yourself. You well, know, like I said, it, you know, dad was going to have a really hard time um, funding my education. So because my sister was also at college, she was at Boston college at the same time. Mm. And, you know, Remember, he was, he had by that time just become a full on con man, basically. And he, all those behaviors that started in the early 70s of borrowing money and, you know, having other people like try to fund some get rich quick scheme, whatever it was, whether it was a legit business opportunity or some freaking scam, um, I was starting to realize that dad's not reliable. And he says that he put money in, in the account, but he didn't. Or So 
yeah, I could, I, I realized I could not rely upon him anymore. And I had to go take matters into my own hands and go earn some money, go work for six or nine months, go work, earn money and have enough money to come back and finish school. So that, that was the second part of the, of the, um, inspiration that day. The third part was also honestly, this other kind of frustration that had built up in my life by that time I was, you know, 19 or 20 or whatever. And it's like, God damn, I've been in school my entire life. I want to get out. You know, I was getting this kind of wanderlust feeling in, in my body. And I just wanted to go, I wanted to go see the West. I was born in Las Vegas initially, but I, you know, California was really calling my name with all the movies and all the music coming out of California. And a lot of my favorite artists were out here and so on. So I, I just had this real calling to come out here. The other thing too, was the, the weather in New York in the, I, I would definitely get a seasonal, uh, what do you call this sad? What do you call it? Seasonal, seasonal depression. Yeah. What's A stand for? Seasonal affected disorder, whatever it is. Something, um, yeah. something like that. Um, and, and it would be, it's like, Oh yay. Snow in New York city. Oh, it's all gray and mushy and nasty and dirty, <laughs> <laughs> you know, no. <laughs> so even like snow wasn't very joyful, if you know what I mean. I was just getting pretty depressed, um, in the winter months in New York and, and also like flipping my schedule around where I'd, I'd stay up all night and then sleep in the day. So I wouldn't even really see the sunshine sometimes. Um, just getting real weird on the weekends um, with my schedule. So all of those things conspired where I, I went home at Christmas and announced I'm going to drive out to LA. I'm going to take a semester off and go try to sort myself out. And I'll tell you one other influence on me too was some of my older buddies would graduate and have no idea what they wanted to do, like what, where their career would be. And to me, that sounded very, I just, I couldn't deal with that kind of uncertainty in my own life. So I wanted to kind of take a quick break and go sort it out. Like what, what am I, I want to be able to get right into a job after I graduate and not have any uncertainty. So I was kind of itching Chomping at the bit, as you as you might say. Sure. So those are some of the reasons I took that semester off, and then once I was out in California, like there was there's so many pulls on me to not go back to school, but I had this obligation. It's like, well, hell, I got into Columbia, and I'm I've got three semesters left. I'm not going to fail on that and get a degree, you know, at Caltech or something. I'm going to finish at Columbia. So I had to go back and finish after I was out here, which I did just that that was just like a personal accomplishment or, and also for my family and everything. Like I had so much support from family and friends to get me to that point. I didn't want to just throw it away. I, I completely understand the school thing. I'm, I, you know, I'm a student myself. I'm in college and I'm uh, I'm in a community college partly because of uh, partly because of ease and and partly because of uh, 
well, actually mostly because of finances. It was actually a, a, a sane process. We, we have uh, free community college here in town. So mm -hmm. uh, they, it was, it was the, it was the shrewd decision to go. Yeah. Uh, and, and then transfer to get a bachelor's degree, but I, I'm, I'm spending longer than I initially thought I would at a uh, community college because it, as it turns out, my, my, uh, degree plan, my, my kind of college career path, uh, in order to transfer has, has gotten me on the path to a pair of AS degrees. So it, it's kind of one of those things where I'll, I will end up waking up in the morning sometimes and go, is, is this worth it? But I, I, I feel a sense of obligation, even in spite of my frequent procrastination <laughs> as, as a college student in the middle of a pandemic. Um, but I, I completely I think it's it. wise. I mean, it, I mean, nobody would want to pay full price to not even be in class right now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I think, I think there's a lot of people following your lead on that, on that strategy to get through college right this year, you know, 2020, 2021. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's weird being a student nowadays and that's yeah. coming and that's coming from somebody who spent uh, 13 years as an online school student. Um, oh, wow. No kidding. Wow. Well, with parents in the music industry and them having to go to gigs a lot, they couldn't really have, uh, have their only child on a, uh, on a, on a regular schedule at a school, they would have had to pull me in school a lot. So ended up throwing me in online school. Mm. But, uh, but I, I will admit my, my online elementary, middle and high school were far better than what's going on now. Oh boy. Wow. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Middle of a pandemic. What are you, <laughs> what are you going to do? We're, we just got to get through it and we right. are. And right. there has been benefit to, to all this, but uh, yeah, so hopefully we get through it with greater knowledge and great, I don't know. I mean, it's like we weren't using Zoom that much before the pandemic, and now it's, I feel like I'm with people and connecting with people, like every day there's meetings to have and it, like connecting with people even more than I did a year ago or a, a year and a half ago, put it that way. Um, I think it's, it's pretty good. I feel quite connected with people. I'm certainly not lonely during pandemic times. That's for sure. Well, if that's, if that's, uh, if that's how it's working out, then good on you. I know plenty of people are feeling, feeling kind of lonely, but if you can, you can stay positive in the middle of it. I, I feel like that's a, that's a good place to be. Well, let's just jump forward 30 years, you know, so I've, I've, I've got this successful audio company and the pandemic hits and what's everybody do? They can't go to the recording studio to record anymore. So they want to continue. Everyone wants to continue to be creative. And so everybody's uh, anyone who's got a couple dollars is like, well, I better build up my home recording rig and I'm going to need a mic pre and a mic and a, maybe a compressor or something. So we're selling the snot out of audio equipment for the last year. That's for sure. It's, uh, it's been amazing. I mean, it, it's one of those little hidden sectors that's actually done real well. And all, all my peers that I speak with, uh, we're all just busting our ass to get this audio gear out to people. That was something I was, I, I, I kind of had been predicting a little bit in, in the height of, 
the pandemic was that a lot of equipment companies, at least in the pro audio field, are going to have some kind of numbers. I I didn't know if it was going to be, you know, huge numbers, but I, I kind of figured that it was going to happen. You know, a lot of a lot of hobbyists and well, everybody in, in this. In sure. This. Even even, um, you know, guitar makers, anyone making musical instruments, they're doing well, too, because I mean, that was the first thing. So the pan, the shutdown happens. And I remember, you know, standing in front of my computer and looking towards the side at my piano that I bought from Dusty, by the way. You mentioned Dusty Wakeman before. Dusty didn't need his grand piano anymore and he needed the space, so he sold it to me. Um, so <laughs> I've got Dusty's nice. piano. I took like two semesters of piano in college, but that's about it. I was a sax player and wind instrument player. And so the pandemic hits, I'm like, oh, great. What a great time to, to start online piano lessons. But have I had one minute to even do anything on piano? No, of course not. I'm just busy working all the time. <laughs> but uh, there's other people who might have had more free time. It's a great time to like take up online something musical lessons from someone because all, all the teachers are out there and they're te they seem to be teaching online these days. So that's cool. No, I, I can, I, I can attest to a lot of friends who are in the, in the field of, of music teacher getting a lot of lessons. Um, and they, and a lot of them were already busy and they got way, way busier. Yeah. Well, think about in general, like in, in history, when there has been great adversity in the world, like, you know, the bubonic plague or, you know, some of the darkest times of human history, what kind of ends up pulling everyone out of it is the arts and expression, artistic expression. So, um, yeah, I, I, I guess it's a good time to be in the creative world in some sort, because that ultimately we will all flourish and we'll get through this. That's you know, words of wisdom from Ivana Manley. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can, I can agree with that. The, the bubonic plague had the Renaissance, the, the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 had the roaring twenties. So that's right. Hopefully, that's right. hopefully now in the 21st century, we'll have roaring twenties part two lined exactly. up, exactly lined up right. Nice. <laughs> it might all end up. Okay. <laughs> That, so, that's, that's my plan. Good. So what are you going to do to contribute to that? Well, I started this production company. Uh, I don't know if anybody told you, but I'm, 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 uh, I'm running a podcast. I, I, I got some interviews lined up. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's, 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 it's a good time to do something like this. For sure. And it, it seems to be a good time to be the president of Manly Laboratories. So. How how has it been to be running a factory through all of this? I mean, you're getting a lot of orders in. Has We've had to be creative and be able to be flexible and be able to pivot in. And we've had to be fearless as well. So, you know, the first thing was fear, like shut down, lockdown, go home. And it was a it was kind of frightening, right? But then we figured out, well, what if we send the inventory department into the factory with no one else and they can pull parts and kit parts and then people can come and pick up kits of parts and take them home 
and work on them at home and then bring bot, you know, bring, you know, next week, bring 20 completed units in. So that's the kind of creativity I'm talking about to be able to work, you know, within the rules, but get the gear out because yeah, to just shut the factory down and say, sorry, we, we got, we can't build anything. That's not helping anybody. <laughs> so right. we right. were able to, um, you know, come up with solutions to be able to continue to produce gear. Um, and it was hard. I mean, we're, we're all freaking exhausted. I mean, this week for me and for my second in command, like week after week of hundred hour work weeks, because it's like, nobody cares about the weekends anymore. Every day is the same as another day, but it's exhausting. I feel very burned out right now from just a massive amount of work and communication. And there's people that are home with existing gear and they're kind of bored and they want to reach out like and talk about their gear, you know, like, Hey, I've had my thing for a while. Should I change the tubes? And, you know, pragmatically, I'm thinking I've already written all these answers. They're on my website. Why are they taking my time to ask me to personally answer that question? You know, but <laughs> You know, I, but I have to understand that they've got, they, it's a good time to kind of get all this stuff in your house cleaned up, you know, while you're stuck at home. It's a good time for house projects. It's a good time to work on your motorbike. It's a good time to learn to cook new dishes or to retube your hi-fi set, you know, <laughs> so. Or, or if you're in, in a field like ours, uh. A good time to uh, ask about how to modify your enhanced Pultec EQ. Sure, you you are welcome to. I mean, for me, um, recently, I've, again, you know, like not having that national anxiety we've been living under for the last four years, um, my brain is just opened up because I don't feel obsessed to to look at the news like ten times a day or just get scrolling on Facebook or something. So. I've had this mental freedom in the last two months to attend the University of YouTube. It's like, I think I'll learn about, you know, smelting metals or <laughs> or <laughs> lathe machining, or uh, I think I'll watch all of the Survivor Man episodes, you know, or just learn about whatever the hell I want to learn about. Um, I've, I've definitely felt more able to do that in the last couple months. I kind of, I'll keep a educational video going, you know, on the side when I'm typing my emails and doing all the admin work I do, but, and that feels good to learn something again. That's for sure. Cause sometimes I get very bogged down in work and just all kinds of administrative tasks. And I, I fail to get into a creative mode or a learning mode at all. And that my brain does not do well when I'm not in a creative or learning mode. I understand it. I've I've been trying to do that. You know, it's weird because I'm a college student, right? And so I should kind of be for sake of school in in a creative and a learning mode so I mm. can, you know, write my essays and do my math homework. Well, I do the math homework. I just don't like writing the essays. Yes, I probably <laughs> a little weird. But, you know, it's it how can you really be creative? So there's sometimes I I have to ask the question like how can you be creative in the middle of this? But you know, there's there's obviously plenty of ways to be creative, uh, doing doing a lot of different things. I know that. Yeah, I'm still trying to learn how my brain works. You know, I got 
I, I experienced some trauma when I was young and there was one shrink in high school that diagnosed me with mild depressive depression disorder. And they gave me some kind of medication for that in the, in the late eighties, but that wasn't, I, w I wasn't depressed. I was totally misdiagnosed. Um, I was very frustrated. And so, and I, I later got diagnosed as an adult with ADHD. And I remember in college, I, I was having a hard time staying on task and I would get very, what also the workload was crazy. We had to read all the, the, you know, the core curriculum at Columbia, we were expected to read, you know, like the Iliad and the Odyssey in one week <laughs> or, you know, these giant big philosophy books like Kant and, <laughs> you know, it's just, I don't know. I, I, I wasn't that interested in them just for myself anyway. And they just seem so overwhelming, these giant works of philosophy. Um, I was having a hard time paying attention and getting through a book <laughs> to tell you the truth. Oh God. And yeah. it might've been some ADHD, but also in my older life, I think sometimes I, I have a hard time digging into something if I've got a lot of anxiety happening around me, you know, either with, with a, of someone close to me or with too much, you know, worry about something at work or whatever. And, or worrying about what the fuck is Donald Trump going to do tomorrow? You know, <laughs> it's like that causes anxiety too. So I'm glad to have a release from at least that kind of national anxiety and the pandemic thing too. Like we're going to be okay. You know, let's just get through this. The vaccines are coming we're going to be okay. So just releasing that anxiety, it's definitely helped my brain function better. And so, like I said, I'm just trying to learn how my brain works. And sometimes it doesn't work very well. I'm trying to learn, like, well, why is that? And what can I do to to uh, get that changed around? Sure. I'm curious, since we've been talking about creativity in the middle of the pandemic, has there been any times uh, in, in this last year that you've been inspired to, to work on new gear designs or, or or field new new ideas in in equipment it, oh there... sure definitely yeah absolutely and it and like i'm saying it i think it relates to getting through anxiety more more than add type stuff i think for me that distraction that really exhausts me comes from anxiety and and i i'll be you know working and worried about something or trying to solve so many problems or trying to help too many people that I can't get into that creative mode because I'm just exhausted by the end of the day. So I'll, I'll start the day helping other people and not helping myself. And then I can't get creative. But when I've gotten through this anxiety, then I can start, you know, uh, brainstorming about new gear designs or new techniques or new metalwork ideas or whatever it is I dream about. Um, for sure. The frustration comes from our, our R and D team is 
we're just a handful of us involved in creating this gear and everything just seems to take forever. <laughs> and it's frustrating because I've got pages of new product ideas or things I want to attack and fix up and whatever. And it just, it moves so, so glacially um, that frustrates me. I wish it were just done quickly, but it has to be done right. And that's a, that's a difference there. So I've got to work on, restraining my impulsiveness <laughs> with my own team and let them do their work because it has to be done. You know, everything has to be engineered correctly and diligently and documented and all that stuff. We can't really shortcut those, those processes. No, I completely get it. I mean, there, there are some companies that release a new piece of gear every year or, or a revision to a new piece of gear every six to 12 months. And, you know, so, some of these companies, it's just like, what what's the point of 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 this new pe like it's the same well it it's a you know. it's a marketing method right so right. something it's new something. and improved that's one way to to keep selling the thing new True. or improved something for winter nam something for summer nam something right like uh, and um but there there's also a balance for us where we've got these products like the Ref Gold and Ref Cardioid mics, or the Variable Mu, or the Massive Passive, um, that they're evergreen products, and they they do best just year after year of being their awesome selves. Like they were designed really great to start with, and there's there's not a whole lot to do, you know, to make them better. One thing that we have been doing is we've got this awesome power supply. I know power supply sounds kind of freaking boring but this when power supply when you're a gear maker you understand the yeah <laughs> it's a it's a badass power supply and it works all over the world we don't have to change voltages you can travel to europe and just plug it in and not think about it um it's quieter and it sounds better and all these awesome things so one thing we have been doing is stepping through our older products and if we can get it to run off this the new manly power power supply then we're doing that so but those are those are you know it's it's a major change of the product internally but it doesn't really change a whole lot that the customer kind of sees it's a, a big internal imp improvement for each of the products but anyway we're getting the vox box ramped up for that right now so um in june i think we'll be shipping the first run of our switch mode power supply powered box boxes. So that's going to be exciting. Last year we did the massive passive and um, we also changed our microphones. All three mics now run off of the manly power, the switch mode power supply. Nice. So that is exciting. And it, it really saves us a lot of hassle as well um, in manufacturing, just like keeping different voltage units in stock and all that kind of thing. We've got one part that can go all over the world now, so that's good. Well, it sounds like it cleans up production pretty significantly. Yeah, there's there's a lot of benefits to this new system. Another thing that's kind of stupid is like we don't have to switch the actual mains volts, you know, the, the 120 or 220 volts. Mm -hmm. We can switch a 5-volt line that turns the supply on it's got a remote turn on capability so that makes you know even the very switch that you have to use to deal with mains power you know a ul certified safety rated switch 
that's certified to deal with, you know, 240 volts or whatever. We don't have to spec in that type of part anymore. Now we can just use a stupid little, you know, micro switch to switch on the five volts because there's no current and no, you know, it's just tiny little volts. So that's, that's good news. I love that part as well. And also keeps the mains away from, it keeps it all just in the back of the unit near the power supply where it's not affecting the inductors or making a bunch of noise with some high impedance lines or whatever. Right. So there's some there's some geeky things inside that definitely improve with the new system. So we've been making those improvements. They're just they're not like they're not worthy of I not worthy. No, they they just it's not a very sexy thing like a whole brand new product, put it that way. But it is right. a if you're geeky enough, it's super sexy. <laughs> well, you know, um I, I can I can prove my geekiness by telling you that I am in the middle of uh, watching a bunch of uh, people building guitars because I have a neck that I've been sitting on that I bought for a different project that failed years and years ago. Mm. And I'm about to buy a body blank and uh, cut cut myself a double cut Les Paul Junior body. How to, fun! To go with this neck. Um, so I am I am plenty geeky, and of course I apprenticed in a guitar and amp repair shop and used to take apart old fenders and man that's awesome i love it it's it's a lot of fun i will admit having skills like that you know where you can you can just jump in and start making things with your hands and you know problem solving skills and engineering skills it's awesome you will always find something to do for somebody right or for yourself Oh, of course. You've, you've got career opportunities up the wazoo that you can you can do things. You must feel empowered, yeah? Some. At at the very least being able to set up my own guitars. That's that's a nice one. <laughs> I think it's great. I think the, it's awesome. The one thing that I've always looked at though, I I I bought it and I, I had a bit of buyer's remorse. So I I'm sure you've heard the name Warren Hewitt a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, He's got a friend. He's probably the angriest Canadian in the world. <laughs> uh, his name is Glenn Fricker, and he runs a YouTube channel called Spectre Sound. And he's a he's a he's a metalhead, and he he's an audio engineer. And he bought one of these uh, music group uh, clones. It's essentially a Behringer, but it's labeled it's branded Clark Technic, one of their EQP yeah clones. yeah. And uh, he he pitted it against one of Warren's EQP one A's, and uh, after finding out that it sounds disgusting, he smashed the thing to pieces with a hammer. <laughs> and, and he cited he cited his reasoning as uh, crappy tiny transformers, and looked at the back of this three U EQP one A original one with, yeah. the, with these massive transformers, and he says this is what the tone is of 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 an original Poltec and and then proceeded to smash this Clark Technic thing to pieces. Now I have one of these Clark Technic things. Do you? I use Was it, it like $200 or something like that? I bought it used for a little bit more than that because the guy said he had changed out the tubes which I I have a ton of buyer's remorse for. I kind of want <laughs> I either want to sell it or or take all the guts out of it and uh and keep it chassis. 
keep the chassis and build the and, and build a real Holtec into it. Um, sure. Because the circuits are easy. But I always look at this and then I think to, after watching that video, I think to your enhanced Poltex, which have taken a 3U EQP1A and a 2U MEQ5 and turned them into single space units. And I think to myself, well, these manly units can't have as big of transformers as fucking the original ones, and yet they sound all as good if not better in some cases yeah they're they're their own thing they it's funny um the pultec eq was actually the first kind of drafting project i did with david manley when i was when that first year i was working with him so he was he had determined that he wanted to build an eq and uh we actually went to teaneck new jersey and tried to offer Eugene Shank some royalty money or anything to like buy the Pultec name or license it or something like we wanted at least his blessings, which he kind of gave us, but he was, he was like partially pretty much retired by the late eighties and basically told David, well, the passive part of the EQ, that was a Western electric, um, uh, design anyway so i couldn't license that to you and the pull tech you know nobody wants these pull techs whatever good luck have a nice life (laughs) and that's 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 what he said and i remember going there to visit him um so that's so david never had an actual pull tech in the building it was funny he borrowed a tube tech from our dealer from coast recording in la and um an engineer we had working for us named Richard Schroeder actually took apart the tube tech and marked out the printed circuit board, like did a rub on trace of it. This is back before we had drafting tools or digital cameras or anything like this. Right. Sure. So, (laughs) I mean, computerized drafting tools, we had pencils and paper and rulers. So, um, the first schematic, and I, I still have a copy of this, was, or I still have it, was this rub-on of the tube tech board. And then Richard and David you know, would draw like the little symbol of a choke between those two pads, and they'd measure out, okay, six millihenries or whatever you are. And they'd draw the schematic symbols of the capacitors between those pads and say, yeah, you're a 0.1 microfarad or whatever. So they reverse engineered a tube tech. So they never even had a pull tech in the building. It was kind of funny. Um, then, then David um, put his favorite, you know, cascaded dual triode into a. Um, I think initially it was a cathode follower, and then we were working also with somebody at that time named Steve Hazelton, who worked with Doug Sachs at the Mastering Lab, and. Steve said, well, you should look at this circuit. This is the Mastering Lab mic pre, and you see it's kind of like an LA-2A, but it's direct coupled into the output stage, the white cathode follower. And Hmm. um, so then we had, David adopted that main gain amplifier block into about everything we built at the time. So that's where that all came from. So I was, I had just joined the company. I'm, I can draw real good, as they say, 
And um, David was like, well, can you take this jumble of this mess that we have here and actually draw the schematic for us? And again, I remind you, we didn't have computers to draw schematics with. And so I, I remember taking the documents back to college with me when I went, when I was like back finishing my last three semesters and drawing on graph paper to try to reorganize the schematic because the EQ part was kind of jumbled up and drawing it out and mailing it back to California through the post with a stamp on the envelope. Like, do you like this drawing? Is this organized well? And then getting a letter back, you know, saying, oh, actually, that's hard to read there. If you could just put this vertically like here and then move this over here. So like working through the post drawing out schematics, it was one of my early jobs with the company. So that Pultec EQ was one of our first products, first pro audio products. Interesting. But no, it wasn't actually modeled after an, a real Pultec. <laughs> that is funny. Yeah. And then as far as transformers go, um, that whole thing could be run completely with no transformers. And so initially, so an actual Pultec has an input transformer and then an intrastage transformer and an output transformer. And, you know, at the time we were trying to build like simpler, cleaner tube gear for whatever that means, you know? And so the, the pull text you could run with no input transformer. You could just come in through, we provided a quarter inch jack on the back and then a, a phase switch and an input transformer on the XLR. So you could run balanced or unbalanced in hit the passive EQ and then no intrastage transformer and just go to the amplifying, the, the re-amplifying stage and output stage. And the output stage in the early 90s, there were no, we had no output transformers on them. And those are single-ended circuits, important to state. Um, they're not differential circuits. So it was a very much like a, a cleaner, simpler version of the CQ that you didn't need to use any transformers. So the modern enhanced Pultex that we build have an input transformer, or you can run it without the transformer through the quarter-inch jack. And they have an output transformer, or you can run it unbalanced through the quarter-inch output jack. So different sound and all that, but I'm I'm glad that David did make the the trip to go try to offer royalties or just try to do the right thing with Eugene Shank um, right. from the onset. I think that Steve Jackson has since talked to Gene Shank, and um, I don't think that he had remembered that day. I remember that day of driving across a GWB and in my Volkswagen with David Manley and finding him and going to his, I think it was a shop, like a little shop, like a, I don't know, kind of disused place. <laughs> that is funny. So anyway. The effort was there. Now, fast forward 30 years later, Pulse Technologies is back on the market. Yeah. Yeah. He's Steve Jackson's a really great guy and we're buds. And um, I really applaud his effort to make a really accurate, perfect Pulse Tech clone. Like he really, he was able to take advantage of 
um, you know, spectral analyzers at HP where we used to work to really get the metallurgy of the original transformers qualified and then be able to make new transformers that were exactly like the old ones and so on. So his adherence to making a faithful Poltec copy has, is super admirable. But see, that's what his goal was from the onset. David Manley's goal from the onset was not to make an accurate copy or clone of a Pultec. It was right. kind of to use it as an initial inspiration point and then create his own thing from that. And it what and it wasn't a copy of a tube tech either. I mean the initial values, um, the heart of the the main center frequencies came the values came from that tube tech board of you know, basically lifting that or stealing that, we could say. Um, but then he also added some extra frequencies along the edges and well, hell, it's an RC it's an RCL circuit, you know. It's like you want that frequency, you want that shape, and you're gonna use these values to get there. So there it is. Right. Now when that company started out, you're you're a you're a small company with a couple of couple of different products, the, the Pultec, the what? Where mic pre's, yeah, yeah, mic preamps, and then the mics and and the audiophile amplifiers. Those were right. first before all the pro gear. Right. How? What was the progression from? going to from being this kind of dinky company with a couple of people to to where you are now with with you know a beloved range of equipment that is pretty much in every pro studio i can think of right now. yeah I, the initial push was frenetic in that and that came from david manley he was later diagnosed later in life after we split up and all that he was later diagnosed with um, manic depressive disorder and that bipolar cycle it's like you've got months of just insane activity that you cannot keep up with because he's in manic mode and then you would have you know other periods of time where he was all hate, hating on everybody and depressed and all you know just just down on everything and everyone around him. And so, but the early nineties represented a manic time for David. So he actually created a shit ton of gear in those couple of years um, before he just really spun out of control coupled with alcoholism as well. So that was the other bad factor. But when he was in the manic mode, he could get a lot of stuff done. The problem was none of the designs or the, the gear was developed very much. So they all had a bunch of issues and problems or hum or noise or unreliable this or something not thought through or that capacitor was undersized or whatever it was. So my role early in the company was to be behind him, like sweeping up all the messes and that gets old real quick too. It's like, why can't you just design it right in the first place for Christ's sake, you know? <laughs> so, but I did learn a lot about how electronics, how, you know, vacuum tube audio electronics work by learning how it doesn't work. And so something would hit my test bench 
we'd be trying to ship it out the door because someone already wanted to buy it, right? But it's like, God damn, this thing's noisy. And so I would have to, it's like, I know I'm going to get a phone call if I ship this out like this. So I'm going to figure out how to quiet this puppy down and I'd get out some tin snips and cut up some metal and make some shields or move that transformer away from that thing or whatever it was, whatever, get that thing quieter so it could ship out. Um, yeah. So I did a lot of engineering design assistant work like that. And that's, that's where I cut my teeth and learned how, how to build gear and how to build better gear. That's quiet. <laughs> right. Nobody wants all that noise in their recording. Fair enough. I mean, yeah, but it's... years later. So what happened was, um, couple years. So David and I got married in 1990, and and then he started drinking about at that time. He had been off booze for a while before that, and he um within three years, it was just utter freaking chaos with his, you know, drinking and anger. He was, he was very angry person and just would anyone who was near him, you'd get chewed up and spit out basically. So me and his son, Luke, were just bearing the brunt of all this negative emotion that was emanating from him. Alcohol makes people angry is what I figured out. So anyway, um, we dried them out and then we split up the companies. So the, the VTL company that Luke took over that and uh, continues to this day building audiophile products. And then um, David bought a building down the street and we moved Manly Production, which was the audiophile products branded Manly and all the pro gear stuff over there. Oh, and Longevin too. We own the Longevin name at the time as well. So we moved over to this new building. That's where we're still in the same building today in Chino, California. Chino, not China. And uh, so that went on for about three years. And then in 1996, he started drinking again and moved to France. He took himself out of the picture. He was really down on everybody, didn't like California anymore, hated America, wanted to go where the sophisticated Europeans are wherever that is and uh he left and so in the course of the divorce I helped David right I sold all his personal stuff off for him and got him you know got him cashed out of California basically and then bought him out of the company and continued on and it was the transition from those times in the late 90s mid to late 90s and today I think it was just right as I was inking the divorce deal in 99. My buddy, Paul Wolf, who used to own, he was owner of API at the time. He's now, um, he was tone, tone Lux and now he's fix ample, uh, fix audio designs. But Paul, he's just always been such a good friend. He said, you know, Ivana, the, the, Past is David Manley and the future is you. So you need to rebrand the company around you because you are the future and nobody's going to care about the past anymore. They're going to look for like, what can you do to, for me tomorrow? So, you know, get his name off the faceplates, get him out of the owner's manuals. You know, you kind of need to rewrite the history of the company on the website a little bit and, you know, really focus on your story and your capabilities to to drive everything forward. And 
it was very scary for me at the time to do that, but I took his advice and I did that. And, um, it was, that was some of the best business advice I ever got from anyone. Best friend advice from anyone, you know, was based the, the big picture story is keep focused on the future, not right. necessarily on the past. Cause, um, yeah. Anyway, so that's when I, you know, created those catalogs of the big stacks of gear with me holding up a microphone triumphantly in that color photograph. So the marketing direction I took in the, after I took control of the company was definitely following Paul's advice, but it, it's worked. And that I think the combination of, you know, solid tech support, like we really try to help people and solve all their problems and all that. We're, we're easy to get hold on of and we've are, are always provided really good tech support. And, um, you know, the creativity I've been able to express over the years, it's, yeah, we've, hell, I'm very proud of what I've done. Definitely. We've, I've created a bunch of good products with a good, and had a great team in place doing this all these years and built a lot of cool, cool units and sold them all over the world. and. It's all right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, you know, uh, pe- people like getting uh, in 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 the small project studio world, they like getting butt hurt over premium prices. And, you know, I, I know that a lot of a lot of people I've I've heard get kind of annoyed about companies like Poltec or Manly or something that they that they're like. That they're yeah, expensive. Well, they yeah, but, ha- they but, are. They're made in America, and I I can't even sell you. I mean, that whole Clark Technique device costs two hundred dollars or something or whatever. I can't even sell down. to you my input transformer for two hundred dollars. You know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. But the the point that I'm I'm getting to is people like to sometimes poo poo premium prices, but what they what they neglect to uh, consider is that when they purchase things that are premium, they're getting premium everything. That Premium everything. The- That's right. It's premium design. It's premium parts. It's premium people. And, and longevity of the company and reliability and all that, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Re- it, it, it's a lot. It's, it's a lot to, and to maintain that over decades as well. It's not just, oh, you bought this expensive thing and now that guy's gone, you know? Right. This is But running a company in America, in California, you know, with the, you know, we've got expensive people, we've got workers, we got 401k plans, health insurance, we've got degree double E people, you know, working on designs and um, you know, we have to have a marketing arm working for us and salespeople. And there's, there's a lot of other admin costs to running a proper company. Um, besides just like, um, you know, we paid that guy $20 an hour to put that thing together. Right. Totally. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I mean, you're, you're doing something that that's kind of, not it's it's not really done anymore you're making gear in california yeah and we need everyone to keep supporting our efforts on this or else all you're going to be getting is um you know two hundred dollar chinese poltec clones that don't sound like poltecs good luck with that you know (laughs) 
you know, if if you if anybody wants a microphonic sounding uh Poltec clone, cheap Poltec clone that was made in China, you're you're <laughs> be my guest. It, You've it got looks, one for sale. <laughs> it it look it looks it looks quite pretty. But <laughs> you know, if if you're if you're actually gonna be getting work done and you and you care about your I'm always amazed that that stuff can be produced so inexpensively. I mean, it just blows my brains when I look at a, you know, a Behringer mixer with, you know, 40 knobs and switches on the fascia and it's like, and it's $200 retail. I'm like, holy hell, man, I couldn't even buy all those parts in America for what that cost full, you know, it, it, it blows my mind, but I'm not stupid. I know if I could make the price less that I would sell more units. I'm not dumb. Okay. If my Manly Pultec didn't cost, you know, I forgot what it costs now, $2,200 retail or something like that. I know if I could make it for half the cost and sell it for half the cost, I would sell twice as many units at least, right? I know that. But there's a formula for all the gear that you take your parts cost and you take your labor hours and you get your calculator out and you multiply that cost by a very small number under under the the number of fingers you have on your hand to come up with the retail price and you have to accommodate also the distribution costs in that too that means your exporters i mean your overseas importers and your dealers you know you have to factor in dealer margin right and that that's part of having you know proper distribution in place as well and it's and, and you know it's not like companies can just turn up you you can't just break even you got to you got to turn the profit i know that that the the one thing that that kind of killed the the pedal company that i worked for when i was younger was that we had a guitar center deal and we we very we we got into guitar center which kind of screwed us over you know it was like cool we got into guitar center 3 weeks later nobody else was stocking our products they were like you got into guitar center. You don't need the little guys, but the yeah. little were entirely our, our, uh, our, our market, you know? Yeah. Well, there, there's, you know, in creating the worldwide distribution networks for my audio file products and my pro audio products, you know, there's definitely a lot of politics involved in squabbling you know, with, with various, um, dealers around the world, like, Oh, you're going to put them on. Well, I'm going to bail. And that, that stuff happens all the time. And there's a lot of effort that needs to go into policing the dealers. You know, you can't have one dealer that just decides to sell everything at 25% discount. Like they don't care about their margins at all, but then the other dealers are making, you know, being seen as fools for selling everything 25% more than this other guy. And then customers are like, man, you're greedy as, you know, why are your prices so high? I'm never buying anything from you again. So that it, you know, to prevent all that chaos from happening, you've got to set up rules and keep that playing field level for the little dealer or the guitar center. Right. So you can't have the real big dealers squishing the little guys either. And it takes a lot of effort and experience to be able to maintain harmony amongst all your dealers, you know. So 
and and part of that is setting boundaries and rules for everyone to follow so that that everyone is treated equally and everyone gets an equal opportunity to make make a profit so in your gear you know whatever your widget is you can't just you can't sell it too cheap or else you can't pay for your bookkeeper or you can't pay for your rent or your little sales company can't pay for the you know, a new display case or whatever it is, you know, everyone's got to make a few dollars here somewhere. Even right. a musician, it's like, write me a song for free. What? <laughs> yeah, no, I want to use it in my movie. Just give me a song. It's like, no, that's how I make my living. I'm going to license you my song. You know, it, everyone has got to make a couple dollars on whatever they're offering. think about equipment makers in the pro audio industry most who are well respected choose quality over everything else for Avana and Manly Labs this is certainly no exception Avana's reputation with Manly has been well revered for a long time now and it's understandable why her attention to detail and care for every single component that goes into the boxes that she makes is obvious when you speak to her. Havana, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm glad we got to talk. I'm also still just absolutely elated of how much history that my family and yours shares. For everyone listening, go check out Manly Laboratories. They make some of the best gear on the market in the pro audio field. And as we spoke about, it is pretty high price to get into a piece of Manly gear, but it's well worth it for an entirely made in USA, local to California piece of equipment with the highest attention to detail paid. I think it's well worth the price of admission. Welcome to Gear Talk, and today I'm going to be talking about buyer's remorse, so I suppose this segment should be really Daniel's buyer remorse. I have a confession to make, and it's already pretty obvious from some of the conversation I had with Ivana. Now, the eagle-eyed, or I suppose owl-eared listeners of you will have remembered a few short months ago when I was gushing over the Clark Technic EQP-KT, an affordable clone of the classic Poltec EQP-1A3. Now, I did really like it at the time, but as I've grown with this unit, I've realized, not really for me. Now, there are a few reasons for this. For one, I just don't find myself using it as much. There's plenty of gear that I would love to use in a hybrid workflow, but at the same time, this just doesn't cut it. Likewise, as I've been listening to it and other demos, I just realized that I don't like the way it sounds. 
Now, I've done some cool things with this, and any one of you who listened to the David Nell song, The Ballad of Sniffy McAdderall, will know that I used this on a mono master for that song. People seem to like the track, so I think it sounded good. At the same time, it really didn't work for me any other times that I've attempted to use it. And so far, that's really been the only thing that I felt comfortable having used this unit on. Now, in theory, it has some great functionality. It has all of the controls of an EQP1A3. And with some modifications, it could be fantastic. But I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I could probably sell this and get a warm audio unit for a couple hundred dollars more that I would like far better. Alternatively, I could save up even more money and get something from Manly Labs that would sound even better than that. So, in general, I just wanted to use that as an example of buyer's remorse. Sometimes we love a product short-term and then end up not really liking it anymore. So I want to really put this one out to all of you. Have you ever experienced buyer's remorse? Have you experienced it with your audio gear or in other parts of your life? What piece of gear, if it was in your recording equipment, did you have some buyer's remorse about? Was it something that you loved initially and then didn't really like? Or was it something that you just didn't like from the start, but bought because you wanted to try it? Let me know. Shoot us an email, r2r.bluegirl at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. This is music from Blue Girl, and a long-awaited one at that. It's been many months since I've given you guys an update on the song Moonlight from my band Danger 8. Now, after much work and briefly giving up on it, I finally have an update for you guys. Uh, This track now has new drums, new guitars, an added synthesizer, some synth bass, and a whole bunch more. So I'm going to shut up and let you listen to it. Here is Moonlight from Danger 8. Enjoy.
That's the show, everybody. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed talking to all of you. Special major big thank you to Miss Savannah Manley for coming on the show. It was so great having you. I can't wait to talk to you more soon. For all of you listening, tune in next time. We're going to have Steve Stevens on the show. I had so much fun talking to him. You're going to like this interview. It is a good one. Likewise, let us know what you think of the new version of Moonlight and if you've ever had any buyer's remorse on any of your audio production gear. Shoot us an email, r2r.bluegirl at gmail.com. Again, r2r.bluegirl at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. As always, there will be more gear to geek out on and more music to share with all of you. But for now, this is Daniel D3 Cohen signing out from Blue Girl Productions Worldwide Headquarters and Studios right here in very sleepy San Francisco, California. We're ready to record.